Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com I like to listen. the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 145th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. And on today's episode, we have a location that was suggested by our listener, Emily Ridner, and that is the Whitney in Detroit, Michigan. Before we get into that, we'd love to have you check out our website, historyghostbump.com. Denise, if people want to send us feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. Denise, did you know that Halloween decorations are starting to come out? I did know that. I've already been looking at some. I can almost taste it. It's getting closer. Ooh, looking forward to it. Just remember, guys, for our Halloween special, we do feature listener stories. It doesn't have to just be in a historic location. So if you want to share those with us, go ahead and email them to us. And if you would like to share it verbally, let us know that as well. And we'll pick a time to get you recorded. We have new bags in the Emporium. A lot of you have been saying, hey, don't you have a tote bag or something? Well, we do now. So if you want to check those out, just click on the Emporium tab at the website. Also want to mention, we did a little special something for Shadows at the Door. They're putting together an anthology. Some of you may recall that, and maybe some of you have already donated to it. We created a special episode called Haunted County Durham, and it's a location that the editor, Mark Nixon, sets his story in. This episode is an exclusive, and you can get access to it if you donate to the Shadows at the Door anthology. It's a little over $2.60 American money. It's about two pounds. What you do is go to shadowsatthedoor.com forward slash store, and at the very bottom of that page, you'll see the little link there, and there's a buy button. You just click on that, make your little donation, and you will get the episode sent out to you. I think you'll really enjoy it. We cover several haunted locations in County Durham and a certain specter as well. Plays bagpipes. Want to give a shout out to Dee, who is still listening to us in the dim lights on Third Shift. Boo! <laughs> Denise, it's funny. I had been hesitant to get on Instagram. Didn't really think I'd be able to figure it out. But we realized that a lot of young people really enjoy Instagram. So we're like, you know, we really better bite the bullet and get on there. So we signed up for it a few months ago. Didn't really do anything with it. We finally started doing stuff with it. And it's been going crazy. Thank you to all of you guys for following us on Instagram. Yes, thank you very much. And I actually like Instagram because it's pictures and I love to take pictures. So... And we had a young lady over there send us a message and she let us know that she loves our podcast and she shared a photo that her boyfriend took on a trip to Savannah. And this was outside the Colonial Park Cemetery there. 
We do have this picture up in the show notes for today's episode if you want to check it out. It could be matrixing, pareidolia, but it does look like there's a face coming out of the tree trunks and it kind of looks like Nostrafu to me. Kind of hideous looking. And then we had another listener named Kevin send us a couple of pictures, one of which shows a picture of him and a couple of other guys, and they have these weird auras around their face that looks like they have faces coming out of their heads. We saw a picture like this in St. Augustine about a year ago at the St. George Inn, and they're kind of creepy looking because it's not exactly the features of the guys. So it It's not like their faces moved and all of a sudden they got these weird images. It's just, I don't know, pretty weird. And then Kevin also sent a cemetery photo he took. And usually we poo-poo orbs, but this one is more like a light. It it looks very, not translucent, very like kind of solid almost. Well, and it's moving. Mm -hmm. It's like a light orb. It's an orb of light. So it's not like just this bubble. It's an orb of light and it looks like it's bouncing upward. And it is in the daytime rather than the nighttime, which sometimes, you know, I mean, you can get the orbs in the daytime, but this one isn't like the ones we've seen before. And if it had little eyes and stuff, it kind of looked like Casper the Friendly Ghost. It would. Now, I noticed there's something that seems to be on top of the headstone, and I don't know what that is. So I don't know if it's something reflecting off of that, because, you know, we debunk stuff and don't necessarily believe right off the get go. But very interesting picture. Are you debunking it or timbunking it? Well, we should probably discuss that, shouldn't we, Denise? As most of you know, we went on an Orlando ghost tour with the American Ghost Adventures this last Friday. Alan was our guide. He was excellent. We had a great time getting to know the history of Orlando, which we didn't really know much about. We thought, well, we better get to know our own city that's here in our back door. And we didn't realize there was going to be a little ghost hunting involved. We got to go into two locations, and Denise was a little hesitant because... You always say, don't ever, ever tempt the spirits. Well, Alan had two mag lights with him. And for those of you who don't know how ghost hunters use mag lights, what they do is they turn them on and then they kind of unscrew them just to the point where they turn off and then they'll set them somewhere. And it is thought that ghostly energy can turn those lights on and off, either by touching it or stepping near it. So we had these two set up, and I will tell you, it was pretty convincing that there was some kind of communication going on there. Now, of course, Denise and I are the kind of people that if it's not something that's within our power, we don't necessarily believe it right off the get-go, because Denise leaned over to me and said, next time we need to bring our own flashlights. Yes, Because who knows, maybe they had it timed a certain way, rigged in some way, I don't know. But if we were to trust that everything that was happening was happening, we seem to be having a conversation with something. Anyway, in the back corner, we were in a bar called the Treetop Bar. And you go up these stairs. It's like you're going up into a treetop and they have like, I don't know, AstroTurf on the floor. And then we went into the next room that was next to it, which looked almost like an abandoned bar. I'm sure they have it open during busy times or something. But they had this weird kind of disco pulse light that was in the back corner. And it was on, I don't know what kind of timing, but it would go all these different colors like red, blue, yellow. And it would blink on every so often and blink the lights around and then it would click off and then it would blink on a little bit. And a couple times... Alan kind of played with it to see if we were getting some kind of response, and we weren't so sure about that one. But then Denise, who was always telling everybody, don't tempt the spirits, did something that I didn't know she was doing until we were getting ready to go home. And for those of you who didn't get to see that exchange, we did do a live video that's up in the Spooktacular crew. 
But Denise, explain what exactly you were doing. Because you say you weren't tempting the spirits. No, I was trying to debunk. Just like I said, we needed our own flashlight. So the lights went on. And I was just kind of joking as we were walking up because we'd already packed up. We were leaving. So I went, boo, and the light turned off. Okay, so if I was with one of these ghost shows, I would have been like, did you see that? Did you see that? They listened to me, blah, blah, blah. But one time, whatever, it could be a short. It could be just the lights turning on. They'd been turning on and off all night. So they came on again. So I just laughed and said, boo, again. And it turned back off. And then I was like, okay, that's weird. Is it just on the cycle? And so trying to debunk whether it was a cycle or not, when it turned back on, I said, boo, again, and it turned off. And so then I was like, huh. I wonder if what the tour guide was doing was real, if there really was something there. So anyway, Diane got on there and everybody thought that I was tempting the spirits, but I told them, no, I was trying to debunk what he was doing. And so Johnny, a very smart listener, decided that that is called Timbunking. So, and I am the first one who's ever Timbunked. I'm thinking we're going to have to make some hashtag Timbunking t-shirts now. Absolutely, because Timbunking is okay. You may Timbunk the spirits, but don't ever, ever tempt them. <laughs> okay, guys, I still say that she was tempting the spirits. I know I had other people backing me up, but I do believe that Angie said if you are in the process of having a haunting occur and you're trying to debunk whatever activity is happening, you're not tempting it because it's already started. Exactly. See, Angie's a very smart listener as well. Now, if, you, if I go back to that bar like this weekend, and I go into that same room and I start saying boo, boo, then I'm tempting the spirits because I'm going in actively trying to get them to interact with me. So listeners, did Denise tempt the spirits? That is for you to decide. You want to share some emails? Okay, we got an email from Callie Hicks. I just wanted to take a moment to say hello. I've been a big fan of your podcast for almost a full year now. I get so excited when I see a new episode pop up in my podcast feed. Haunted history has always been fascinating to me. Thanks to your podcast, I have quite a list of spooky places to visit one day. I also wanted to mention I am also a Walt Disney World cast member like Denise. I'm a graphic designer, illustrator, working for Disney Design Group. We create all the merchandise for Walt Disney World and Disneyland. I've been with the company since 2008. I discovered your podcast at the very moment I started working on a huge project for the Haunted Mansion. You two kept me company during some long days and nights working on the art. Hearing all your spooky stories certainly made me motivated drawing all those happy haunts. So I just wanted to say thank you. And I'm interested in what artwork she did for Haunted Mansion because we look at all that new art like in Memento Mori and a lot of the other stores that are at the parks. And if it's merchandise, she might have drawn one of them. And Denise likes to shop, so go figure. And then we also heard from Molly Frias. Hey, ladies, my name is Molly Frias. I recently became an executive producer. Yay! I'm the one who compared your show to the cream cheese Mickey Mouse pretzel. And no, Denise, it's just the sweet cream cheese, no jalapenos. Dang it. So we need to get creating a new pretzel. I love your podcast, and it's one of my favorite pastimes since I became legally blind and had to stop working. You both bring a huge smile to my face with your banter and laughter. I'm also a huge Disney lover, and like Diane, I am team villains all the way. Yeah. You poor simple fools thinking you could defeat me, me, the mistress of all evil. It would be a pleasure to meet you one day if you ever do a ghost tour here in Los Angeles, California, or maybe spend the day at my favorite place in the world, Disneyland. 
Thank you for being a bright light in my day and just know that your listeners love you unconditionally. And we heard from Sasha. I've been listening to your podcast for a handful of months now and can honestly say that I love it. I've almost caught up on past episodes due to my long drives and long prep room hours. I'm a trade embalmer in Santa Cruz, California, and can appreciate the mixture of history, lore, and the macabre. Your presentation of archived events and local experiences are perfect, and I find your mispronunciation of names and places endearing and genuine. Thank God. (laughs) I know, so at least we get to be endearing. (laughs) My experiences from working in hundreds of funeral homes and morgues are vast. I'll spare you the novel and just say that in my personal opinion, the history of our past is marred into our surroundings. Residual energy and lost spirits are incredibly real and become even more real when their stories are told by open-minded voices such as yours. The only thing people that have passed and the survivors that they leave behind have in common is the desire to be remembered by memories. This is one of the reasons I listen to your podcast and others like it. History and paranormal alike. Well, that's a really cool way to think of it. Very cool. And then she went on to suggest some locations in Santa Cruz. So we're looking forward to checking into those. We want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Michelle. Hey, Michelle. Rachel. Hi, Rachel. Marissa. Hey, Marissa. Amy. Hey, Amy. Doyle and Julia. Hey, Doyle and Julia. Mary. Hey, Mary. Trevor. Hi, Trevor. Carlos. Hey, Carlos. Thomas. Hi, Thomas. Michael. Hi, Michael. And Lena. Hey, Lena. She is also known as Selena, and she is host of the Haunted Estate podcast, which I've been listening to and binging on recently. It's got haunted histories and true ghost stories on it as well, if you guys want to check that out. We're going to be featuring the Whitney today. You ready to go, Denise? I sure am. And just so people know, Emily Ridner's parents went there for a special occasion and took pictures of the interior, and it's hard to find pictures of the interior. So if you want to see those, those will be in the show notes as well. History Goes Bump is entirely listener-supported. Become an executive producer for as little as $1 a month. Get listed on the website and invited to exclusive virtual meetups. For $5 a month, you get that and exclusive bonus content like the Haunted True Crime bonus cast. For $10 and above a month, you'll get all that plus awesome History Goes Bump gear. Check out patreon.com slash historygoesbump or you can support us via PayPal. Click the support the show tab at historygoesbump.com for more information. History is full of oddities, curiosities, mysteries, and the truly bizarre. Welcome to This Moment in Oddity. Our moment in oddity was suggested by listener Teresa Slavin. In the late 1860s, a very peculiar train station opened its doors for the first time. This train station was a mortuary. It's located in Sydney, Australia, and when it was running, it carried the dead along with their loved ones to Rockwood Necropolis. Thirty dead bodies would be placed in wooden wagons and loaded onto the train. When they arrived at the station, they would be offloaded and carried to their burial plots, where they would be reunited with family members that had also rode the train. The Rockwood Necropolis is the largest cemetery in the Southern Hemisphere, spreading out over 700 acres. Nearly one million have been buried here. The funeral train stopped running in the 1950s, but the railway station for the dead still stands. The station and cemetery are reputedly haunted, and many believe it is because of the power behind railway lines. A train that ran for the sole purpose of bringing the dead to their final resting place, and a railway station that really was just a mortuary, certainly are odd. 
grab your slippers, hot chocolate, flashlight, and maybe even that baseball bat. This Day in History And This Day in History is brought to us by Richard Schaefer. On this day, August 27th in 1593, Pierre Bayer attempted to assassinate King Henry IV of France. He failed in his endeavor and later confessed the attempt to a Dominican priest named Father Verada in hopes that the priest would absolve him. This would lead to his demise, as this priest would turn him in. Apparently, Jesuit priests were notorious for promoting the assassination of the king, while others, like the Dominicans, remained loyal to the crown. It is shocking that Father Verretta not only encouraged him to confess, but also told him to follow through with all of the religious rituals, including Easter Mass. He told Bayer that this was a good thing he was doing, and perhaps the wannabe assassin thought that his confession would save him from punishment, along with the practice of the other rituals. Bayer never made it to Easter Mass. He was arrested later that day and was convicted in less than four days. He was placed on the breaking wheel, and after his body was broken and devastated, he was then dismembered. History Goes Bump Podcast. In Detroit, Michigan, sits a grand home with a gabled roof, arched windows, and a beautiful rose hue emanates from the facade. This upscale dining establishment was once the David Whitney House and is known today simply as the Whitney. David Whitney Jr. was such a successful lumber baron that people would remark that he was the man who could outlumber Paul Bunyan. He was one of the wealthiest men in America, and he would leave his mark in Detroit in a very positive way. Some believe he remains in the home he built in the afterlife. There seems to be other spirits at the Whitney as well. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of the Whitney. The Whitney family is known for their wealth and were early settlers to America. John Whitney came over from London in 1635 and settled in Watertown, Massachusetts. The Elms is the historic family mansion in Watertown, and it was built in 1710. I'd love to see that location as well. One of John Whitney's descendants was David Whitney Jr. David was born in October of 1830 in Massachusetts. He established himself well in Lowell, Massachusetts, and was a millionaire, Denise, by the age of 27. Wow. I feel like a failure. Nah. (laughs) He decided to move west to Detroit, Michigan at that time. The year was 1857, and David would become one of the most prominent men in Detroit history. He made his money in lumber, and he joined forces with his brother Charles in Detroit, and they expanded the lumber business into Ohio, Indiana, and Pennsylvania. The mound builders were here in the Detroit area before the French came. The area came to be known as La Detroit, which means the Straits in French. Antoine de la Mothe Cadillac felt that the area would be great for a fort. A cannon could be fired from one side of the Detroit River to the other. The court in France agreed, and Cadillac was allowed to establish a settlement at the Detroit River in 1701. Cadillac called this settlement Fort Pontchartrain. 
Little did Cadillac realize, but his king had sold him out to Canada. The Company of the Colony of Canada was an all-Canadian fur company, and it was given full rights to the fort with Cadillac as its employee. Can you imagine you've found this perfect spot, you've gone and fought to have something established there. They say, yep, you can go ahead and build a fort. And then they say, oh, and by the way, they're your bosses. Yeah. And you think you're going to be running the show. Yeah, you build this great fort, you find the spot, you think, here we go. And it's like, okay, no, you're the employee. <laughs> it's like, thanks. <laughs> he left in 1702, hoping to get his rights back. He finally would in 1705 after things got very sour for the company with ill relations with the Native Americans and embezzlement in the leadership. In the mid-1700s, Britain attacked Quebec and Montreal and took the fight south. The French finally had to surrender New France and Detroit came under British control. American forces would take Detroit in 1796. The legislature of the Northwest Territory at Chillicothe, Ohio, would vote to incorporate Detroit on January 18, 1802. The city incorporation would become official in 1806. Throughout the 1800s, the Detroit government would grow and take shape. David was a brilliant real estate investor, knowing that if he could buy forested land cheaply, he could make a mint because steel was still in its early stages of development and wood was in dire need. Most of the good New England wood had already been harvested. Michigan offered plenty of forested land, and he bought much of it for as little as $2 an acre. His profits would generally equal 100 times what he spent on the land. One obstacle to building a timber business in Michigan was getting the wood to sawmills and then to market. So David invested in shipping lines. He soon owned an extensive line of steam barges. When steel finally got a foothold and most of the prime white pine timber was harvested, David decided to use his real estate skills in buying property for other uses. He came to be known as Mr. Woodward Avenue because he bought so much property on that street. One of the structures he would have built on Woodward Avenue would be the David Whitney House. David's wife, Flora, whom he had married in 1860 and had four children with, had passed away in 1882 and so she would never see the impressive home he commissioned to have built in 1890. Flora's sister Sarah would get to enjoy the home, though, as she married David in 1883, and she would live in the home until her death in 1917. David hired Detroit architect Gordon W. Lloyd to design the house, and it was built in the Romanesque style. A unique building material was chosen, South Dakota Jasper, which is a rare variety of pink granite. Because of this, the house has a pink hue that is quite striking. The granite was laid in a random ashlar pattern. The outside is decorated with grotesque, intertwined leaf motifs and the initials DW. Slate tiles cover the roof in a fish scale pattern. There is a round tower with a conical roof, giving it a bit of a castle-like flair. It took four years to complete and encompasses 21,000 square feet with 52 rooms, 20 fireplaces, 218 windows, an elevator, and a secret vault in the dining room. It cost $400,000 to build. One newspaper described the house in 1894 as the most elaborate and substantial residence in this part of the country. 21,000 square feet and 52 rooms. I would not want to clean that place. No, but it sounds absolutely gorgeous, especially I want to see the pink hue, like be outside of it. Another place I want to see that does that color thing is the Taj Mahal. And so this mm. would be like a little baby Taj. 
Sure. The thing, when this kind of fell into disrepair and people weren't loving it as much, it didn't have the pink hue as much. It got really gray because of all the pollution in Detroit. But once they got it cleaned up, it was shining again. It does sound like it's just gorgeous on the outside there. And anything that's decorated with grotesques is right up my alley. So Especially if it's pink. Pink grotesques. I don't know. I'd, I'd be interested to see what those look like. I haven't seen any pictures of those. The inside of the house was even more impressive than the outside. There was a great hall that featured a grand staircase. All rooms of the house opened into the hall that stretched all the way to the third floor. This hall was illuminated with a Tiffany stained glass window that was two stories tall, featuring a knight paying his respects to the Whitney family whose ancestry contained several knights. A bronze balustrade adorned the staircase. An ornate fireplace and mantelpiece were in the Great Hall with an antique bronze clock on the mantel. And there's actually a picture of Emily's mom. And it looks like behind her, you can see the antique bronze clock on the mantel. Very the cool. Fireplace. So it's still there. Yeah. The tile floor was in a Flemish mosaic design. The Whitney's extensive collection of art was displayed on the walls in the form of tapestries from the legendary Goblin Tapestry Works in Paris, handwoven silks and other objects. The house was electric and put in by David Whitney's good friend, Thomas Edison. That's something to brag about. Thomas Edison put in the electrical in my house. Yeah, at the time it was probably just, oh yeah, Tom, come on down here and help me out with this. And they're like, you know, doing stuff. And it's a little different than us asking our neighbor behind us to help us put our dining room light in. Well, maybe someday they'll say, you remember? Yeah. <laughs> I'll be in the history books. I'm sure John's not going to make it into the history books. Um, it was funny when you were reading all the different ways styles were. It's like I'm getting Harry Potter going through my brain because it just kind of had that that sound to it, you know, when, and other objects. It's like the goblin tapestry works in handwoven silks and other objects. It sounded like a class from Hogwarts. Well, and we started off talking about this great hall. So you're imagining this great dining mm -hmm. hall. It basically was the whole center of the house. The way I'm picturing it is open. It's like open air. Wow. And so you could probably look up the three stories right there in the front foyer, I'm assuming. A statue of Psyche was placed in the music room, which also had Tiffany stained glass windows featuring St. Cecilia and Apollo with his lyre. I remember St. Cecilia from the St. Cecilia Music Center, the haunt, that one haunted oh, yeah. location that we covered. Oh, She's the right. patron saint of music, I believe. That would make sense since they put her in the music room here, too. Mm -hmm. The ceiling was silk and cherubs were painted on it. David's smoking room was right next door. It had a vaulted ceiling and mahogany woodwork. The reception and drying rooms were painted in ivory with gold relief. The floors were Honduras mahogany with bird's eye maple inlay. The library had seven-foot-high bookshelves made from mahogany. The ceiling was crisscrossed with wooden beams. There was also a 10-foot-high fireplace with deep blue tiles accented with silver filigree. Wow. That I would love, love, love to see in person. Can you guess what his favorite wood must have been? Uh, mahogany? <laughs> uh, pine. Which makes sense. Mahogany is a beautiful wood, so I can see that. David passed away in 1900, and he was worth $15 million at his death, making him one of the richest men in the country. As mentioned before, Sarah lived in the house until her death in 1917, and then the beautiful home stood empty with only a caretaker to look after it until 1932, when the Whitney family let the Wayne County Medical Society move into the home. 
The carriage house was behind the home and was the largest carriage house in the state when it was built. There was a lift to take carriages to the second floor. Can you imagine that? It had its own little elevator in there. That's amazing, especially back in that time. Well, and incidentally, just the fact that this house had an elevator in it. Wow. Yeah, very much. Quite different. This carriage house held the offices of the Visiting Nurses Association, which had moved into it in 1929. The Whitney family had always been big supporters of the medical arts, and they charged the society nothing to occupy the house and even paid the annual taxes. The Great Depression eased, and the society was able to take over the bills. By 1941, the family had given the home to the society. Grace Whitney, who represented the family, said, quote, It means much to us that this house, filled with sacred memories, is now given to such a glorious organization as the Wayne County Medical Society, end quote. The Medical Society stayed at this location until 1956, when it built an upgraded facility elsewhere. They did take some of the artwork from the home to put in the new facility, including a bronze bust of Shakespeare, the Psyche statue that had been in the music room, and a bust of Venus de Milo. When the Medical Society moved out, the Visiting Nurse Association used grants to purchase the house in 1957. The nurses maintained the building until 1979. Rumors started to float about after the nurses left that the home would be torn down. An entrepreneur named Richard Kuhn could not bear the thought of the city treasure being torn down. He believed it should be preserved for the public to enjoy, so he bought the David Whitney house. Can you imagine tearing that down? No, but they do stuff like that all the time. It's like, oh, we need a road, so let's tear down all these beautiful structures. What I had read is there were lots of beautiful homes on this street, and most of them were torn down. Well, do you- think about it when when it's a little bit, I mean, that that's still an older house, but like if we went down the street, there might be an older house that we'd be like, oh, that could be torn down. But a hundred years from now, it'd be like, oh my gosh, don't ever tear that beautiful thing down. Maybe. I can't imagine anybody thinking like our houses nowadays are going to be the treasures. <laughs> I guess maybe granite countertops will be a cool thing a hundred years from now that they'll be like, wow, that had granite countertops. Yeah. And they were so retro and look at that stucco. I don't know. Yeah, because we just really don't have the woodwork. And even for you and I in our house, if we want to get some of the woodwork, we have to do it ourselves. If we wanted to put crown molding in or something, we'd have to do that all ourselves. And it wouldn't be that fancy. It's just whatever you can pick up at Lowe's. (laughs) David's former home became an upscale restaurant called The Whitney that Richard opened in 1986 after a costly and long renovation. The dining areas were placed in the various rooms of the house on the first and second floors and named for the original purpose of those rooms. The servant quarters in the back of the house was made into a state-of-the-art kitchen. The painted murals in the home were all restored. A cocktail lounge named Winter Garden was opened on the third floor. Richard ran the place until 2007 when he sold it to Bud Liebler, who did some more renovations and renamed the third floor the Ghost Bar. Liebler also moved his business, the Liebler Group, into the third floor. Liebler changed the name of the bar on the third floor to the Ghost Bar for a specific reason. That reason being that David Whitney may have passed away, but his spirit did not pass on to the other side of the veil. There are rumors that his spirit still haunts his former home. People claim that he is one of the most well-dressed ghosts in the afterlife because when he appears as a full-bodied apparition, he is seen in a short-waist tuxedo. Liebler claims that one morning he came out of his office and found a candle lit on a table. He was the only one in the restaurant and he had not lit the candle. And a fun fact about this is that they serve ghostinis at the ghost bar. 
<laughs> you gotta love that. <laughs> Ghost teenies. The kitchen is the scene of some haunting experiences in the form of mysterious sounds like water running and stacking dishes without anyone actually being in the kitchen doing dishes. Grace, we mentioned earlier, she's the one who was quoted as saying that she was happy to give the house to the medical society. So she was one of the Whitney's children. And some claim she haunts the property. She has a table that is kept in the carriage house. It is referred to as Grace's table, and it has a tea set on top of it. Her full-bodied apparition has been spied several times in the carriage house, and EVPs of her have been caught. Grace was an adult woman, so on that Ghost Hunters episode, they acted like they were talking to a little girl, and so we're not exactly sure what that was all about. I watched some bits and pieces of it here and there that they had on the internet, and they treated it like they were talking to a little girl about her tea set when this more than likely was an adult woman. Again, We sometimes wonder about, do you make a decision about an age when you come back, or who knows? The ghost bar has been the scene of both a little girl's apparition and a man's apparition walking through the walls and a large curtain. Some also claim that a little boy spirit has been seen here as well. The identity of the little boy or the little girl is unknown, and we don't know why they would be here. Now, this wasn't a hospital, This was a medical society, and I'm assuming it was mostly doctor's offices. So I wouldn't think that you'd have a lot of people dying in the building. So I really, I'm baffled as to why we would have these children there. And of course, you and I tend to lean towards it's something else if it's children. So I don't know. Although something that you just said, Diane, that's kind of interesting is that If we don't have a choice of what age we come back, it could be that children are actually adults that have returned to a different time of their life or like to a time that maybe... Oh my gosh, did we just come up with another theory? I think so. (laughs) Because then it would make sense why we might have children's spirits. It's it's actually an adult that, that hasn't passed on yet, that has unfinished business, and maybe some of the unfinished business is around that age that they were. So even though they were adult when they passed, they're back at the age or the time when they were a younger go or a younger person. Wow, that's interesting. Look at us. We keep coming up with all of these different little theories about stuff. What do you listeners think about that? That's I don't know, maybe then. It's not that it's necessarily a child who died as a child, but it could be somebody who said, you know, I want to be twelve again. Maybe you can change out what ages you're gonna be. Who knows? I mean none of us are gonna know for sure until we get to the other side. So I guess it's just us guessing. Yeah, but that's what's fun. We like to speculate. The most haunted area of the hotel seems to be the elevator. It inexplicably opens and travels up and down on its own. No one will be anywhere near the elevator, and it will just slide open. And in case you don't believe stories shared on the internet, perhaps you will believe the story that our listener and suggester of this episode, Emily, shared about her parents' experience at the Whitney. On October 27, 2014, my dad brought my mom to the Whitney for lunch to celebrate her 50th birthday. They ate at the first floor dining room with two other groups. By the time they had finished, they were the last ones in the dining room and asked their server if it was all right to explore the house. This wasn't them looking for ghostly activity, seeing as my dad isn't the spook-seeking type, but rather they wanted to see all the beautiful decor and architecture. They were basically told to help themselves and begun wandering around and taking pictures. While on the third floor, they stood at the banister looking down at the landing and the stained glass windows. 
As they were taking in the stained glass, which my mom is a serious sucker for, the elevator to their left opened, waited, closed, and went back down as if someone had been standing nearby and had pressed the call button. Remember, the other two groups had left, leaving only my parents and the staff in the building. They'd been up there for long enough that they would have seen anybody call the elevator and walk away. They knew it was said to be haunted and figured the elevator showing up on its own was something that frequently happened. Again, they weren't seeking anything by exploring, but did get a bit of a thrill. Ghost hunters claim to debunk this by timing the elevator, but there are too many experiences to completely write this off as some kind of constant mechanical malfunction. I could see it happening every so often, but there are a lot of people who claim this happens. And here you have Emily's parents. They're the only ones left. Pretty interesting. Maybe it was just that it mechanically did that, but I myself have never seen an elevator go up and down all on its own and open up without somebody pushing some kind of buttons, especially to open up. Maybe go up and down for some weird reason, but to open the doors right where they are, it's almost like somebody wanted them to see. Look, the elevator's opening, nobody inside, because it could have opened on the second floor, the first floor, but it opened where they were on the third floor. True. True which just happens to be the place that they have called the ghost bar because they see supposedly David Whitney there a lot. So maybe it was David just leaving from having a ghostini. One woman did claim that a relative of hers had been killed while working on the elevator, but we didn't find any proof for that. Haunt investigators of Michigan have caught some interesting photos and EVPs. One EVP was of a male voice saying, restroom. Not exactly sure why, but... (laughs) must have needed to pee really bad in the afterlife. Objects move on their own. Drawers open and close on their own, as do doors. The Whitney is a wonderful reminder of the grand past Detroit once had. Are there other reminders of the past still held on this property in the form of paranormal activity? Are the spirits of the family members continued to stay in their beloved home after death? Is the Whitney haunted? That is for you to decide. What this reminded me of was the Lent Mansion, because the Lent Mansion is set up very similar. You've got an old grand mansion that has been turned into a restaurant. They've kept all the rooms the same. They haven't like knocked out walls and made it one big dining area. And so you're eating in different rooms that have different theming and different names. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to go eat here. I don't know what the cost is, but I'd love to go eat here if we ever visit Detroit. It's upscale, so I imagine it's a little pricey. On our next episode, we are going to be joined by a listener who suggested our next location, Katie Dunlap, and she had wanted to do somewhere in West Virginia because that's where she's from, and she had suggested this Battle of Matawan, and when I looked at it, I didn't see any hauntings that went with it, but I saw that one of the people that was connected to this battle died and haunts a certain location there. And when I looked into the location, I found out, oh, this place is pretty haunted called the Low Hotel. And it happens to be in the city of Point Pleasant in West Virginia. For those of you that are fans of cryptids or legends, you probably know why Point Pleasant would be significant. So we'll be talking about something else on that show as well as the Low Hotel. And what would that be, Diane? I'm not going to tell. Ah, so there you have it. We do have some reviews to share with you all over on iTunes. I think this username is supposed to be like, it's Navabigood instead of Never Be Good. Navabigood. 
Right up my alley, five stars. This podcast is one of my favorites. I'm still exploring the huge backlog of episodes, and I keep finding old ones that I absolutely love. The latest episode about the Salem Witch House is my favorite so far. I love the blend of history and haunt that the hosts have mastered. Diana and Denise are both great. Big thumbs up from Metro Detroit. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? <laughs> we got a review from Detroit. We timed wow. that. I did not actually time that. That That's... was that synchronicity? <laughs> I guess so. There you go. And Salem Witch House, we have heard a lot of great stuff about it. It's a lot of people's favorites. So I'm really glad that we did that one. Absolutely. Then we have Bronze Leviosa, five stars. And this is all one word. Oh, my God. Where have you been all my life? And then we have another. This is all one word. Oh, my God. 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 (laughs) (laughs) You ladies are perfect. Where have you been for my entire existence? Here. You've been here. And I've been blind. I heard about your pod via Miss Legends and Whiskey. Stayed away for a few months because I'm an idiot. I love ghost stories, history, podcasts, and Disney. All I have to say is that you two win on an exponential level. Thank you for existing. Well, thank you, Bronze. We appreciate that. And thanks, Tanner, for mentioning us on your show. Absolutely. And by the way, you're not an idiot. And then we got another review from Canada. Oh, Canada. Our friends up north. This is from Me Muhahaha. I love the names. Five stars. Beautifully spooky podcast and community. A wonderful mix of everything paranormal with a strong sense of community. The hosts and guests go beyond in helping all us paranormal fans learn more amazing things. Well, thank you, Me Muhaha. Yes, thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to welcome new executive producers, Darcy Kenworthy, Angie Renoso-Agbarzad, Heather Asiri, Melissa Kabik, and we got a one-time donation from Kristen Sandell. Thank you. Fan of the show? Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast catcher. We would greatly appreciate your review at iTunes as well to help the show grow. Thank you.